1: All right, JB, thank you very much. I am Chris Cuomo, and welcome to Primetime. We've got 64 days until Election Day, and I don't think that we have had a more dangerous period in our recent history. It's time to come together to understand the facts and for you to make the choices that will set our course ahead. The country is in the grip of two crises. Neither one is under control. Coronavirus continues to spread. Now, our kids... Are back in school, in different ways, in different places, almost everywhere, without the kind of testing we need to track, to trace, and to keep them and their families safe. The president continues to ignore this health crisis. He instead sees advantage in focusing on the violence around the country. But here, too, he is ignoring the real illness of systemic inequality, instead, blaming his opponent and anyone and anything else he can for the growing disorder that's happening on his watch. The wave of violence and destruction that we've seen in recent weeks and months has occurred in cities exclusively controlled and dominated by the Biden, Joe Biden party. The violence is fueled by dangerous rhetoric from far left politicians that demonize our nation and demonize our police. Many young Americans have been fed lies about America being a wicked nation plagued by racism. Now, again, I don't know who's writing this stuff for him. You can see he's reading. You can see he's not all that familiar with the material, but he likes its intent. And those people, too, are complicit in passing messages they know are not just wrong, but wrong for the country. Systemic inequality is real. You know it. I know it. We see it in our schools our lending, our courts, our prisons, and our morgues. This president knows it too. Of course, all Americans are not racist. No one should say that because it's not the truth. And remember, our country was designed to be able to defeat inequality like this, and uniquely so. So why would this president lie about the reality? It seems, This is just about scaring his base enough to win the election. And I have to tell you, whatever the polls say, it may work. The big question is, at what price? He is now literally painting a man who supports him as a victim at the same time the police are calling him a murderer.
2: That was an interesting situation. You saw the same tape as I saw. And uh, he was trying to get away from them, I guess, it looks like, and he fell, and then they very violently attacked him. And it was something that
1: we're looking at right now, and it's under investigation, but uh, I I guess he was in very big trouble. He would have been, he probably would have been killed. You guess he probably would have been killed? The guy with the gun against the unarmed people? Is this law and order? backing a 17-year-old who came to town from out of state with a gun that was illegal for him to carry openly, who then shot and killed people protesting, only to have police let him walk by as the crowd shouted what he had done. What about the two people who were killed at the scene? You don't have to guess about them. They're dead. They were white, too. Maybe not Trump supporters like the shooter. But think about it. How can our president believe that painting this shooter as a victim is good for our country. How does that not encourage more of what the local police called vigilanteism? The violence in the streets, even when in the name of positive change, is negative and wrong. You don't need me to tell you that looting and rioting are not protesting. Scenes of whites and blacks hurting and being hurt are scary. They're un-American. They are not progress. All politicians should be loud and clear about that. It shouldn't be a point of division. But this president has chosen to make racial equality an opposing force to his own political cause. He also defended supporters who shot paintballs at protesters in Portland, saying, quote, paint is a defensive mechanism, blaming Biden, who is not in office for what is happening while Trump is in office. The Democratic nominee had a reminder for the president today. The violence we're seeing in Donald Trump's America. These are not images of some imagined Joe Biden America in the future. These are images of Donald Trump's America today. He keeps telling you, if only he was president, it wouldn't happen if he was president. He keeps telling us that he was president, you'd feel safe. Well, he is president, whether he knows it or not. And it is happening. It's getting worse. It is getting worse. And in 60-some days, you're going to have to decide what will make it better. That has to be our collective cause. Now, our president is about to head to Kenosha. Local leaders there are uncertain about his impact. They think things are too unstable for him or for Biden to go. I don't think they're wrong. president barely spoke at this briefing today about coronavirus, which is why he started holding these briefings again. He declined to take reporters' questions from CNN, that the pandemic is a problem and what is he going to do about it? Instead of answering, he blasted out of the room. As we both know in our lives, very few problems get better when you ignore them. The unrest over systemic inequality isn't getting any better. We're ignoring it, or at least our leaders are. We're getting sicker figuratively because of that and literally because of a pandemic. we got now more than six million of us infected with COVID. We could hit 300,000 deaths by year's end, according to a new projection. Our president's answer? Forget the facts. Forget the reality. Forget that we need testing on a scale only he can make happen. Instead, he wants you to believe that the statistics are grossly exaggerated. Do you need me to tell you that I'm sure you now know someone in your own family or the family you choose who's had this thing? You've heard the stories of people being sick. You're hearing the stories of them staying sick. Long haul syndrome. We're hiding from it, we can't. Starting tonight, I'm gonna start talking to you about what people are still suffering even when they get mild cases. So instead of protecting the herd the way only this president can, only he can marshal the testing we need, he now has a doctor who's on your screen, Dr. Atlas, saying the herd's going to have to protect itself. Dr. Atlas, on his task force, is reportedly trying to get the administration to go for a herd immunity strategy. You know what that means. It means that you have to have a lot more people get sick so that we can get this over with. Now, I hope this isn't the best that this administration can do. I really hope it doesn't happen but hasn't Trump already told us that he's okay with staggering losses? Remember, he responded to news of the death toll by saying, it is what it is. How do we make it better than that? His FDA chief is mulling fast-tracking a vaccine. Trials aren't complete. You got Tony Fauci and other task force members warning against that. And again, the backdrop, remember where we are today. Kids all over this country, Going back to school in all these different fugazi ways, hybrid, in, out, when, tracking. Why? Because they can't test the kids effectively in timely fashion to manage the situation. We should have done better. You see what's happening at our colleges? These reckless scenes. We should have been better than this. It's not fair to the kids. It's not fair to any of us. Let's look at the path going forward from here. Let's bring in former CDC director Tom Frieden. Uh, Tom, thank you for being with us tonight. Doctor, what is your take on what you understand, Dr. Atlas and that part of the cabal pushing as herd immunity?
0: Well, in the past week, Chris, we saw two very concerning things. We saw the FDA have a decision on emergency use of plasma, which may have been the correct decision, but politicized in how it did it, where it did it, what it said and you had the White House and HHS overrule the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and say, no, don't test people who are contacts of people with COVID if they don't have symptoms, which makes absolutely no sense. That is to let COVID spread. And this concept that, you know, young people will get COVID, they won't get very sick and then we'll all be okay, ignores the fact that we're all connected that what starts in the young doesn't stay in the young. Chris, there've already been more than 215,000 excess deaths beyond baseline between March 8th and July 31st. 71% of those deaths had a doctor who wrote on a death certificate COVID caused it. The others could have been from COVID that wasn't diagnosed or from people who couldn't get to the doctor to get their heart attack taken care of on time. We've had too many casualties from this pandemic. Too many people have died. Too many jobs have been lost. There's been too much harm to our economy. We can't let the FDA and the CDC be the next casualties of this pandemic.
1: You tweeted about uh, what happened with herd immunity in Sweden. Uh, And before people think, well, that's not apples to apples, they're totally different. You compare how that worked for Sweden versus Denmark, Norway, and Finland. What's the point there? The point is that Sweden took an approach of saying, hey, let's let a little bit more
0: economic activity go, and have it voluntary rather than mandatory. Well, it didn't work out. They have a much, much higher death rate than their neighboring countries, and guess what? Their economy is doing worse as well. The only way to control this virus is to control the virus. It's not a question of health, versus economics, the way to regain our economy is to control
1: the pandemic. Uh, The vaccine. Everybody knows they're going as fast. I keep being told that they have an all-star team working on it, that Operation Warp Speed is moving at just that. However, now the U.S. Food and Drug Administration Commissioner, Dr. Stephen Hahn, is saying that the agency could possibly greenlight a vaccine before phase three trials are over. Is phase three somewhat superfluous or that once you get into it, you know whether you have a winner or not, so you don't need to do the whole phase? Is this a good move? Vaccines are really
0: complicated because you need to know, do they work? Are they safe? And will people trust them? We've got vaccine manufacturers who have never made a vaccine before. We have vaccine technologies that have never been used before. I think at this point, we would all be surprised if there weren't a surprise announcement of a vaccine in October. But the fact is that a vaccine may be the single best tool we have to fight COVID. And that's why it's so important that we get it right, that we not cut any corners on safety. Because if people don't trust it, if it's not approved with clear data, if there has isn't complete transparency about what's happening, we risk a blowback. We risk one step forward, three steps backwards. That's what happened with this administration opening too soon in Southern states. That's what's happening in schools opening where there's lots of COVID and having to slam shut again. We don't want that to happen with the vaccine because vaccines are precious. They are our most powerful tools to control the pandemic. By Uh, all all indications,
1: doctor, if they announce a vaccine in October, it's not about science, it's all about, about political science. And it's right in line with when there'd be an October surprise and there'd be something positive to line up for this election. I just hope it's backed by science and something that makes us better, not worse. I got to jump. Dr. Tom Frieden, as always, thank you for keeping us informed and help us understand what matters here. Thank you, Chris. All right. To me, I I don't know about you, but what's more scary about this is not being told the truth about the numbers and what's happening. That's why we covered Rebecca Jones. Remember her, the ousted manager of Florida's coronavirus data tracking dashboard? Jones said then, hey, they're not doing numbers the right way in Florida. She got savaged. She was right. She says she was asked to manipulate the numbers. Her superiors said she was fired for insubordination. She then filed a whistleblower complaint. But now she's gonna take us inside the reality of what's happening with schools. She's got her kid herself in Florida schools. So she's worried as a parent, And as a scientist, she's also launched a tool that may be the first and certainly the best of its kind to do something that nobody else is gonna do for us. Track COVID-19 cases in school, K through 12, all around the US. How could we not have that? Why did she have to do it? Rebecca Jones with the reality and what the right way should be, next on Primetime. Rebecca Jones joins us now once again to talk about this groundbreaking COVID-19 dashboard of hers. Just think about that. A citizen came up with how to track K-12 school cases, not our government. Good to see you. Thank you for joining us.
3: I'm always happy to join you, Chris.
1: Now, you were in the middle of controversy last time we had you on. They were saying they had to get (laughs) rid of you. Uh, You were saying, I'm telling you, they told me to manipulate data. I'm telling you, they're not being straight about the data. now you're going to track it yourself. Why do we need a dashboard that tracks it nationally? What will that mean for us?
3: Unfortunately, we've had no leadership at the federal level to embark on a mission to track cases in K through 12 districts across the whole U.S. So I noticed that there was a gap there, an information and data gap. And having the resources and the knowledge and the skill set I have, I joined up with Fan Mango, who's a Financial literacy nonprofit and decided to fix it.
1: And how hard was it for you to do this, by the way?
3: <laughs> Very hard. <laughs> it's it's more work than um, any one person can manage by themselves, and that's why I was really lucky to find people to help me build this project, help find all the data resources that are out there, and pull it all in. We're currently talking with potential contributors to add to this list of resources so it is a lot of work
1: do you have any early indication of what's going on out there it's bad how do you it's know bad. already
3: um well schools in mississippi and georgia alabama a lot of places in the us southeast have been open since the first week of august Governor DeSantis here in Florida uh, issued an executive order that was overturned last week that all schools here in Florida had to open by today.
4: But he's litigating Uh, it, so
1: the order stands, which is why they went back to school. I told them uh, in the last segment, but just so they remember, you're a mom and you've got a kid who's in Florida schools, so this isn't just a clinical interest uh, for you. Is it true that in your home state of Florida, the governor has the schools not reporting cases?
3: Yes, it is. Um, Duval County schools were ready to launch their own dashboard, tracking cases in every one of their schools and every, you know, across their whole district. And according to the superintendent there, the state stepped in and said, no, you need to ask us for permission before you even notify parents about cases in your school. Okay. but ev-
1: So, so yeah. Eva, so let's say that that's a protective mechanism, that they're able to vet the data, make sure it's good data, no false panic. What happens when people ask to release the data?
3: they're they're told that doh is working on the best route to publish this data in a way that doesn't compromise patient privacy but all of these states that are using hipaa as a shield to not release data about cases in schools aren't using hipaa correctly hipaa is designed to protect an individual healthcare record to, that can be tied to a person mm-hmm. you cannot identify any single person by saying the number of let's say teachers who have tested positive across an entire school district. Right, they're already putting out not data like that means. about
1: cases and who and where and how. They're just being now selective about this new category. Is it true that at some point this month, Florida actually released reports on COVID-19 cases associated with daycares, schools and colleges and then pulled them back?
3: Yes, they did for three days in a row. One day after the other, they released a polished and finalized report that listed the number of cases in each one of those categories for every single county in the state.
1: And when called on it and asked about it, they said, no, 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 we're taking them off. They're not finalized. What does that mean to you? Correct.
3: That means that I think someone was told to generate this report and upload it before all the ducks were in a row at the leadership level. um, And leadership didn't like what the numbers showed. So they pulled back on it and decided they're just not going to tell us anything.
1: What are you worried about as a mom with your kid?
3: That I'm not going to find out about cases in my son's school until it's too late for me pulling him out to be effective.
1: But all the kids are okay when they get sick. It's like one in a gazillion has something bad. Why doesn't that work for you?
3: That's not true. I've written obituaries for several of the kids who have died in Florida. I still remember their names, like Daquan Wimberly and Kimmy and Carson Lee Davis. I've written their obituaries. This this is not something that kids are immune to. Over 3,000 children just in the state of Florida have been hospitalized because of this illness. This isn't just, oh, they get better. And people seem to forget children have been the single most shielded group Since this started, we immediately canceled schools for the rest of the semester in March when there were only a couple of hundred cases in Florida. So what do they think starting schools when there's a baseline of half a million active cases is going to do?
1: Mm. I hope it doesn't look like the colleges. I mean, those scenes, and again, I get criticized for this. It's hard for me to blame the kids, man. You know, you have kids there in their college age, you're telling them they can come back on campus. What do you think they're gonna do? That's why leadership is about making decisions that people aren't gonna find popular. And it is amazing to me, Rebecca Jones, that you are putting together the national database and we don't have it at the federal level. Thank you for staying in touch. Thank you for the work you're doing and good luck going forward for you and your family.
3: Of course, thank you.
1: All right. Now look, uh, have you been following what happened in Portland? It's not easy. Uh, We don't know exactly what happened yet, and we should. You should take time for facts to develop. There's no question that sometimes uh, people get ahead of themselves. It doesn't help anything, all right? We do know a man was killed in violent clashes that were going on between Trump supporters and Black Lives Matter protesters. I don't understand why those have become opposite causes. I don't know why the president encourages that. But we do know the identity of the victim, and we have a reporter who was there, they, he, they have a video, this reporter. They will take us through what went down before the shooting. All right, this reporter was hit by one of those defensive paintballs being shot at protesters by the president's supporters. What he saw on the streets of Portland, you need to know next. All right, let's go to Portland, Oregon, okay? There is a lot that we don't know. Start there. We don't understand what this dynamic was, but we're getting closer, and I can help you do that right now. We certainly know the name of one man killed Saturday night, 39-year-old Aaron J. Danielson. He's on your screen. He was shot as Trump supporters got into it with people protesting systemic racism and police brutality. CNN does have video of the shooting from across the street. It's dark. It's tough to see what really happens, I'll be honest with you. So let's get some perspective from someone who was on the ground to witness, not the shooting, not the shooting, but what was going on that night in those clashes. Okay, the reporter is named Mike Baker of The New York Times. He's in Portland. Thank you for taking the opportunity. Thanks for having me. So tell us uh, what was uh, it like on the streets?
5: Yeah, I mean, it became a real volatile scene that kind of lasted for quite some time. It was so the event began as a a, a rally for Trump supporters out in the suburbs, and they were going to come through, drive around the city on the outskirts of downtown, stay on the highways. But a lot of them, I mean, there're hundreds hundreds of trucks with uh, Trump flags and American flags driving driving through the streets, and a lot of them peeled off and came right into downtown, right where a lot of the protesters were gathering for the night, and immediately became a lot of conflict, you know, protesters blocking the vehicles. You had, uh, you know, the the Trump supporters, as you you said, firing paintballs into the crowd, some uh, pepper spray being sprayed, and then, you know, protesters throwing things back at the crowd. You know, when there were vehicles stopped, there were people getting out and fistfights happening. I mean, it was just an escalating thing over time as these vehicles went through downtown Portland.
1: You um, saw them shooting the paintballs. You got hit with one of them yourself. The president says that this is a peaceful thing. It's a defensive thing. How did they seem to be uh, deployed in your experience?
5: I mean, it was, it, it was clear that these folks were coming in ready for something. I mean, they, they're sitting in the backs of pickup trucks with paintball guns at the ready. They've got, uh, you know, bear mace at their side. And, and, and for some of them, they were openly carrying uh, when they were getting into their truck's to head down to Portland. So it was, uh, you know, it was a it was a scene where they were there was they're clearly ready for some level of conflict.
1: Did you get to talk to any of the Trump supporters or get any sense of why they see it as being in opposition to the demand for systematic equality?
5: You know, for some of them, it was just a chance to come into Portland. I mean, they, they were feeling like Portland had been dominated for you know the basically the past three months by these protesters that they see as you know left wing and, and in some ways antithetical to what they believe, and they wanted to come in and fly the Trump flag in Portland, and this was a chance for them to do it in big numbers and show that uh, you know they weren't afraid to make it happen.
1: Pro protest, according to the president, the president is a euphemism for violence. That that's what's going on all over the country. What's your experience on the streets there?
5: I mean, it's a, it, it's a different I've been out uh, many nights now with the protesters and it's a different thing uh, every week. I mean, from the time when the feds were here uh, in Portland, when there were thousands of protesters and the moms were out and, and these in and these larger crowds to now. I mean, when I was out last night, there were maybe 150 protesters out and they went out to a police station and uh, some of them were throwing eggs and rocks. And then the police came out and arrested. 20, the police say they arrested 29 people out of, you know, maybe 150, maybe one out of every five was arrested last night. Uh, so, in, but that's a, it's a totally different scene. It's, a, you know, 150 people compared to, you know, 4,000 that were there, um, you know, um, earlier last month. So it's, uh, you know, changes every night. Um, your
1: sense of policing, would you say that they are too soft? Do you think they're too harsh? What's your sense of how the police are dealing with protesters?
5: Well, I've definitely noticed a, a, a major change in their tactics here the last week. You know, they're um, they no longer use it, the, or they're trying not to use tear gas. They say they're, that's one of the sort of obligations; is they're they're limited on their use of tear gas. And their new tactic seems to be, you know, rushing out and grabbing everyone they can get their hands on, who they can uh, they can cite for a crime, and it it can be pretty aggressive. I mean, we saw people getting thrown to the ground pretty hard last night um, and some aggressive tactics to to make that happen. Well, when the police are
1: getting aggressive, are they usually being met with
5: aggression? You know, a lot of it is more what I see. Every once in a while you see someone throw a water bottle, but a lot of it is just yelling. I mean, there's the the protesters here have endured, um, you know, three months of Portland police, you know, at the beginning, a lot of tear gas, Um, And and a lot of it since then has been, you know, chasing them through the streets and and tackling them them to the ground. So I think they just have an immense frustration with the level of aggression that they see from police and and feeling like it's, you know, it's just more proof that this is, this cause is a just one for them.
1: Now, you did not see the actual shooting uh, that took Mr. Danielson. What is your concern from being on the street about what will happen going forward here? And What do you think is needed, from a reporting perspective?
5: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're seeing a lot of concern from the protesters that there might be some level of retribution coming. In fact, this was this was actually the third weekend in a row where there was right wing um, folks come into town and clashes with these protesters. I mean, we saw. uh, uh, I'm trying to think. Three weeks ago, it was uh, it was someone that fired two gunshots from their vehicle, and then. Uh, uh, two, two Saturdays ago, it was uh, someone pointing a gun uh, in the middle of a really volatile situation. And then we had, you know, this shooting that left this uh, you know, far right activist uh, you know, dead on Saturday. So we've, you know, three Saturdays in a row where there's been guns drawn uh, and violence on the streets of Portland. So there's a lot of concern that this is, um, you know, this is a, a, a really a flashpoint where this could get even worse. And the protesters are starting to figure out how to take precautions, you know, they're not folks, a lot of these folks are, you know, philosophical aversions to, to guns and gun violence. They've spent most of their time sort of preparing for, you know, tear gas and pepper balls, but nothing like uh, like actual gunfire that, that they're afraid of now.
1: Well, especially in this charged political environment, as we're getting down to the election, uh, which is turning into kind of a D-Day, you do have an increase in the supporters of this president meeting the protesters that they are being told by the president and others are a problem. Uh, in America. So, you're in the right place, maybe at the wrong time. Mike Baker, be safe, but thank you for giving us a clear-eyed perspective of what's happening for the New York Times and for us today. God bless and be safe. Thanks. All right. Now, let's go back from one crisis to another, COVID. This conversation has to happen. I really wish it didn't. I'll I'll be honest with you. This long-haul syndrome, I really wanted it to be just a pocket. I really did, like, yes, some people, but they're super sensitive and they were gonna get sick anyway, and now it's just worse because they had COVID. But it's turned out not to be the case. Many who have suffered with this virus continue to suffer. Some of the original symptoms repeat or extend, or they're starting to get new illnesses. Now, I started reaching out to people because their support groups and stuff, you can find them on social media, and more and more people are sending me the scariest stories. So one of my new friends, my COVID sister, uh, who has been having her own long haul experience, Shelby, you're gonna meet her, Uh, along with a top medical mind, Dr. Lee, who I met through a friend who's dealing with long haul as well. And he says he sees science in this. This is not just some kind of randomness. Something's happening here and we need to talk about it. Next. All right, now, some of us who have tested positive for coronavirus, symptoms go away. Some are very mild. Now, for some of those people, then something comes back. Then even though they didn't have bad things in the beginning, they started to develop things later on. Maybe related, maybe not. Then you have another group. And I've been reluctant to discuss this with you guys because enough about me and the COVID. So many people have it, but I am in this other group Okay, and you're gonna meet my friend Shelby Hedgecock, um, who is in my group as well, where we got sick and it's not really going away. This is more true for Shelby than it is for me. Again, I am one of the lucky ones and I ain't that lucky, okay? For me, it's depression. My body isn't recovering the way it did. I'm having problems with my blood levels. Now, I do have a lot of antibodies, and Sanjay Gupta and I are going to show you how to donate plasma if you have them, and I'm fit as a fiddle for that purpose. But my head's not right. My body's not right. My lungs aren't right. Shelby was tested several times, then came back positive in April. Negative a couple of times in May. Positive again at the end of May. Why? Look, testing is not 100%, and there's something called viral load. You know, even though you may feel one way, you may have a certain amount of virus in the system, it can trigger the testing. As we approach September, Shelby continues to live with everything from loss of smell to lack of feeling in her legs. She joins me tonight along with Dr. William Lee, okay? Now, I met William Lee through another friend who's dealing with long haul, uh, and he has been studying people like Shelby and me to figure out what's going on, and he sees something that's not being discussed. First, Shelby, good to see you. Um, Thank you so much for reaching out and keeping me in the loop with stuff that is not exactly comfortable to talk about. Uh, But what do you want people to know about your experience?
6: Uh, Thank you for having me (laughs) again, Chris, and I hate that you're still dealing with it as well. I mean, (laughs) I'm going on month five, and I'm still dealing with neurological issues, cognitive issues. I was back in the hospital about three weeks ago, and I had to wear a heart monitor for two weeks because my pulse skyrocketed to about 150 beats per minute. It stayed that way for about 45 minutes, and I've been having weird shortness of breath since then, chest pain. And guys, I mean... (laughs) people are having real serious issues. Very, very serious issues. I mean, I was a personal trainer before this and I can't even do gentle yoga without being in bed uh, with horrible body aches and pains for days after. And it's debilitating. Um, We're seeing very severe issues. I mean, every organ system is affected and, and it's very, very scary.
1: So Um, Shelby, Dr. Lee is listening. You can't see him. You you can't see (laughs) Dr. Lee, but he's listening to you and he's nodding his head. Yes. Yes. Because in talking with him, you know, I guess we take, you know, the word commiserate uh, people, you know, misery loves company. It is good to know that you're not alone, but it's sad for everybody who's dealing with it. Of course. Now, Dr. Lee, when I spoke to you and I was telling you uh, the kinds of symptoms I was hearing about, you said, yes, and part of the reason that the scientific community is surprised, as you have deduced to this point, is that it was seen as just a lung virus. But now you see it as something else that is starting to make more sense to you in terms of what you're hearing from people like Shelby. Explain.
4: Well, when the pandemic hit and we started to take notice of the lung uh, aspects of the, of the coronavirus, uh, everybody was focused just on the breathing. But one of the things we started to notice that was really curious is the COVID toe, the brain syndrome, the strokes, the uh, uh, the heart uh, attack-like syndromes that turned out not to be a heart attack. And so one of the things that um, now needs to be discussed, because we're seeing it far beyond the acute COVID syndrome, is the long-term syndromes that are surfacing everywhere. And this is the conversation that needs to be had in the medical and the research community, and not just in the sufferers who are actually dealing with it. And one of the things that we did in my uh, group is we started to take a deep dive to find out what was happening that could connect all these apparently unconnected symptoms and syndromes. And it turns out it may be blood vessels that the coronavirus is infecting, which then of course connected everywhere in the body. So what does a
1: Shelby do about this? Because everybody who goes to the doctor is told time,
4: Well, this is clearly not, you know, sort of the average post viral syndrome and there's a lot we don't understand about it. So, you know, I I think what's really humbling to those of us in medical research and in clinical care is when we confront something we just don't know enough about, but we need to take it seriously and we need to have the humility to recognize that we're just starting to observe and collect the data right now. Now, what I'm trying to do is to connect the dots because we've actually seen, seen the virus infecting The lining of the blood vessels, the endothelial cells, then cells getting inflamed and then actually carrying that into blood clots that can rage across the body from the lungs to the heart and elsewhere. So we think that this long term damage may in part be due to vascular damage. It's kind of a a footprint kind of uh, that the virus leaves even when it's gone from the body. Now, what's interesting about the heart is that just a couple of weeks ago, uh, there were two studies out of Frankfurt, Germany, one of which looked at 100 patients um, with COVID recovered, including people that weren't even in a hospital. And uh, they all had chest pain, and they actually had uh, cardiac imaging done to look at their heart, because these patients had fluttering, as you said, uh, Shelby. And what we found was that what they found was really amazing. 78% actually had some evidence of long-term heart impact. So that would be a depressed pumping ability. It could be fluid around the heart. And so one of the things we started to realize is that we really, this is real. And it's, we can't write it off. And even in the brain, we're beginning to um, uh, sort of conceptualize that the blood vessels may also play a role there.
1: Well, look, you know, Shelby's listening to you and she's like, yeah, great. Um, <laughs> yeah. Listen, it could be, Shelby, it could be. And, and a lot of this is attitude uh, right now. Shelby was teasing with me. She was like, don't give me short shrift on this segment. I had my hair done for you. At least we can. have the. You've seen the pictures of people sending you all their hair, right, Shelby, from all this hair loss, especially women. Oh, yeah. Women. Um, and look, God forbid, the worst thing that happens to you is that you lose some hair and it comes back. You, you got lucky, but you know you've noticed there's a whole community out there, Shelby. Right?
6: Right, right. And I'm a part of a couple different groups. I mean, we have the Long Haul COVID Fighters. We have Survivor Corps, and with Survivor Corps, I mean, we're really doing a lot of research. We're actually doing, conducting a survey right now, uh, that is actually looking into the longevity of symptoms. And, um, I mean, it's, we're just now seeing some of the numbers come in and it is, I mean, it's terrifying. And as you were saying, I mean, this is a conversation that just is not happening. And if we look at one in three people that are having these long-term complications, I mean, <laughs> six million people have, uh, coronavirus in the United States, that's two million people. That doesn't even account for the people that didn't get a positive COVID test. So this is going to be a public health debacle that's going to last for decades to come. and it needs to be a conversation that, that keeps on <laughs> keeps on happening. So uh, we just need to keep talking about it and you know I, I greatly appreciate um, you know your time today, doctor you know bringing that up that right. definitely gives us some insight i know a lot of long haulers are watching <laughs>
1: so right and unfortunately there's too there're too many of them Um, And look, of course, you know, for the long haulers, they have the best thing in me you can ask for with the media, which is is joint purpose. Um, You know, sometimes we cover things too much and then we move away and we don't care anymore. Or not that we don't care, but the audience gets compassion fatigue and we move on. I can't have that happen, uh, Dr. Lee, because I support the work that you're doing. I know it's going to lead somewhere good uh, for people and it's going to be on the back of people like Shelby Hedgecock. Uh, who's being honest with you and talking about what's going on and living it uh, in real time, because I, I just know I'm one of the lucky ones and I am nowhere near where I was before I had this. I'm lucky I'm here, but
4: hey, Doctor, Chris,
1: go ahead. Last word to you.
4: Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the things that I, I think that having this conversation tonight is the beginning of actually being able to solve this crisis. And you're somebody who has such reserve and a, and capacity to be able to communicate I think one of the things that you need to be able to do is to be absolutely candid with your audience and listeners and to encourage people not to hold back, but to really put it out there and so that everybody will start to listen. I mean, this is, the, this is really how it starts to solve problems.
1: I, I agree with you. This is tricky. Uh, and Shelby has said the same thing, but I have to tell you, this is what I've learned. Turns out that when you say that you have brain fog and depression that doesn't go away, it doesn't exactly excite your audience. And a lot of people weaponize it and say, I knew it was crazy because uh, we have all these stigmas about mental health and everything else. You know, And if I told people, hey, my elbow is swollen, which is true, just out of nowhere, my elbow was swollen, um, they'd be like, oh, wow, that sucks. Uh, COVID, uh, that, that's scary. But if you tell them I got brain fog or my emotions aren't monitoring the way they usually do, now it's, well, there's something weird about you. So we're working through it. I will err on the side of candor, as always. Shelby, you know I'll be in touch. Keep me in the loop. I'll let the community know. I can be a conduit for what's going on. And Dr. Lee, as always, if there's anything I can do to help, thank you for helping us. Thank you, Chris. All right, God bless you both. I'll be talking to both of you. Thank you. Now, listen, I know I'm a little early on this, but trust me, I'm not getting to something that nobody else is going to discover. There is no eureka. Doctors, no. People all over the country are seeing this, Our politicians are aware. And that's why I get so pissed about politicians ignoring the pandemic. That's why I wanted the Republicans to say more about the pandemic or anything really at their convention. They also appear to have ignored a law to keep politics out of government. Now I wasn't big on telling you about what should have been obvious. You're not supposed to use the White House as a political backdrop. There's a Hatch Act. Now, you will say, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, when Trump does it, nobody else has done it. And I'm going to use the words of Trump's main man in the Senate about what this law means in terms of what we saw in that convention and what we're seeing every day. Not from me, from Trump's main man. Next. Many of you were watching the Republican convention. You saw the people's house, your house, transformed at your expense into a political prop. Donald Trump got exactly what he wanted. He got to talk that he cared about COVID, but he took that message to a largely maskless crowd. He got the chance and cheers in front of that ultimate power position. And there was predictable lefty outrage, right? But not from Republicans. Republicans loved it. What a great built-in home field advantage. Incumbents have advantages, but to be in front of the White House, man, that's powerful. And they know it. And they actually didn't like it until now. Why? Because the silence from Republicans amplifies a sham that we saw when people like Mitch McConnell fought against changes that would have loosened the restrictions between the work of government and politics. So we teamed up with CNN's K-File. You got to follow these guys. Uh, They find things that you will not find otherwise. And we discovered this, or they discovered this, from 1993. Please listen.
2: These are provisions, if enacted into law, would in fact present the opportunity for federal employees to be heavily involved in the political process. Heavily involved. Now what does that do to the confidence of the American people that they have a nonpartisan, a civil service, not involved in the political process? It is indeed frightening to think of the federal workforce out involved in the political process.
1: It's frightening to have people who are working in government as part of the political process. That's Senator Mitch McConnell. But it's okay to have the Secretary of State in Jerusalem pumping for the president. It's okay to have all these staffers pumping for the president during a political convention in front of the White House. The confidence of the American people is what was at stake, according to the senator. Now, of course, he's talking about 1993 Hatch Act, right? And it's a mess. Why? Big-name presidential appointees get a pass while your average civil servants can and do lose their jobs over doing the same thing. You know who used to know this? McConnell. You just heard him. Republicans had high ground on this. They said, keep it separate. They tried repeatedly repeatedly during the Obama administration, to ratchet up punishments for violating this law. Both sides do it, you say, but why don't both sides care? A majority think most politicians are corrupt. This is why. That's why Mitch McConnell and his Republicans are counting on this, that you don't expect anything better from these people. And yet he wanted you to expect better when it served him to do so. Thank you for watching us tonight. D. Lemon, 34 seconds late. My fault. There he is.
2: I'll let you get away with it.
1: Thank you. That's why I pay all the this time. It, this is
2: your first night back at 9 o'clock, so I'll let you get away with it. True. Feels good. Yeah. Feels good. It's good to have you back. And it's, isn't it good it's like not midnight or 2 in the morning? Uh, yes. I should
1: be more excited. Um, but <laughs> as uh, we were talking in the long haul thing, I just don't have the emotional peaks or valleys that I had before I had COVID. I just don't get as excited. And they tell me it's this clinical form of depression that they're seeing in a lot of post-COVID cases. I talk to Don about this all the time. He's trying to kill me say, up. Are
2: we sharing what, what we talk about? Every but day? I'm saying, you know, I want yeah. people
1: to know because I, I keep hearing it from them. And they're so desperate, Don. They're yeah. so worried um, that they're alone. And I'm experiencing the same thing. I had somebody else on tonight. Alyssa Milano's got the same stuff. I mean, there's a whole community out there, unfortunately, which is why... You know, guys like you and me have such urgency about getting ahead, ahead of this COVID
2: thing. Yeah, And the, what you can do, as I always tell you, deal with the personal. You'll deal with that. We'll deal with that. But you are in a position, you have a platform where you can inform the public. And you should take solace in that, that you can help people. And as I say, you can keep it real. Yeah. Because we keep it real here. And just like, you, just like you talked about Mitch McConnell and the hypocrisy of the Republicans. We have to keep it real. And I think it's all where you place your focus, which I will tell you in in just moments uh, when I open with my take tonight about keeping focus. I'll be listening. I may not remember it, but that's not about you. No, it's the COVID. No, but you keep it. We got you. We got you. you. Don't worry about it. And a lot of people have you. I need you and I appreciate you. I'll be watching. You know what you have the most important thing you got? Hair. Well, you don't really have that. Come on, let's not tell the truth about that. What do I have? You've got the church ladies with the hats on your side. When you have them on your side, they pray for you. They got your back. You're, getting, you're not going anywhere. You got the church lady with the hat. You got my, the, my mom crowd. You're good. So just relax. I'm trying. All right. <laughs> Thank you I, for I love the love. <laughs> I'll see you soon. I love you, D. Lemon. I'll see
1: you, you tomorrow.
4: Too, I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like.
2: A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.